All right, let's turn to our scripture reading for this morning. Let's look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Let's give our attentive uh, listening to the reading of God's holy word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use this time to um, bring your word down to our hearts as your son had come down to earth. Uh, We ask that your word, your truth, uh, would descend on us and um, that we would receive it with open and uh, glad hearts. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We're in what's called the Advent season, which usually begins on the Sunday that falls somewhere between November 27th and December 3rd or 4th. And it, it lasts for four Sundays or so leading up to Christmas Day. And that's traditionally the, the, when the new Christian calendar year begins on on the first day of Christmas, and then you have the 12 days of Christmas, right? And I hope that as as, um, good churchmen, you you do celebrate Christmas for 12 days and not just on Christmas Day and put away your Christmas tree um, on the 26th, but traditionally it's gone until January 6th on the 12th day of Christmas, um, which is called Epiphany. It's it's, it's symbolically uh, commemorating the day when the Magi's visited the the manger and visited Jesus who was born. Well, what does Advent symbolize? Um, Here's one way to put it. The Advent uh, symbolizes the present state situation of the church in what the New Testament calls the last days. When you look at the book of Acts or the book of Hebrews, the phrase last days is not used to refer to some um, end time period, the, the, the end of history, it's actually used to refer to our present day. We are in the last days. Uh, it's the period in which God's people, having, having seen historically Jesus' birth and life, we await for the returning of Christ in glory uh, so that he would complete and consummate uh, his kingdom. So in a sense, the church today is... Uh, in a similar situation to the Israelites in the Old Testament, where they would constantly look back on the Exodus and on the basis of 
God led us out of Egypt, um, they will look at their present difficulties and trials, sufferings, and reassure themselves, he will deliver us again. As surely as he led us out of Egypt, he will lead us out of this present trouble once again. And Christians are very much in the same boat in that we look at the first coming of Christ, we look at Christmas, and then we, whatever present troubles we may face, we look at that and we say, as surely as Christ came, the Messiah came to the earth and, and came to taste our, our sadness, our, our sin, our sorrow, um, he will surely come again to save us from whatever predicament we're in um, right now. That's why we sing, as the Israelites did, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins and fears, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. And it's because we believe in that reality of his first coming, which is Christmas, we celebrate and look forward to the second coming of Christ and celebrate that too. And it's, that's why it's uh, very important for us to uh, draw a line between the two dots, Christmas, first coming, first advent, and his second coming, the end of the world. And not celebrate Christmas as a sort of singular dot severed and disconnected from this other dot, the second advent of Christ. Otherwise, you're, what you're celebrating is something that's, that's sort of empty and vain. Uh, uh, it doesn't fully complete what it came to accomplish. And you have to understand all that Christmas and all the symbols of Christmas pointing us to is really how one day uh, our faith will be made sight, the, the, the real thing, the real completion, and all that, all that God promised his people will come true in his second coming. And I hope that you, um, and, and if you have children, for your children, you'll, you'll connect these dots during uh, this Advent season as you celebrate or look forward to celebrating Christmas. Um, Tell yourself, tell your family, tell your kids. Uh, we live in a, a world still filled with a lot of darkness, right? a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of death. But, but like the Christmas tree that kind of lights up your dark living room, uh, a great light is going to dawn on the world and change everything. And that's the second coming of Christ. We saw a glimpse of that in Christmas, but we'll see the great light that casts out all of the darkness in the second coming of Christ. How do we know that's going to be real? As surely as the first light came on Christmas Day, right? uh, so surely he will come again. Okay. As, as historical as that birth was, as historical uh, will his second coming be. So Merry Christmas, <laughs> because Jesus is coming again. Right? That's how we ought to really connect the dot, form this line, and celebrate Christmas holistically and not in sort of this, in this sort of materialistic vacuum that it's often in. Um, and it might be difficult to keep that in mind, right? Because if, if you're like me, I'm also kind of busy getting ready for the holiday season. Family's coming into town and shopping for gifts and decorating your homes. Um, but it's at the same time, if you are just living life, you turn on the news or, or you see the breaking news that's popping up on your phone, you, you, you have to wonder, in the midst of all the violence and evil and death and confusion and strife and conflict, why are we giving each other toasters and you know, air fryers? And what, 
what, is, what are we doing here? Uh, how is this rational to be celebrating in the midst of all this chaos? And, and the only rational answer to that is if Christ came and he's coming again. Uh, if we have true cause to cry out to our God who cares for us and sees us in the midst of our suffering, uh, if we have cause to expect his return to redeem us, and if we really have cause to anticipate how no more will sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground, if you have true basis to believe that, then your celebration of this child of Bethlehem is not your sort of annual seasonal materialistic escapism from all the disturbing things around the world. It's actually historically, morally meaningful realism uh, in, in how you hold on to your hope. Okay. Christmas is about the hope of the world. So, so with that sort of preface, extensive preface, I want to look at our text today. But before I jump into that, just a couple of notes here. Contrary to what you might have been thinking as you looked at this text early on, uh, this passage is actually very relevant to the season of Advent. The passage uh, we read today actually contains some of the most debated verses within one of the most difficult books in the whole Bible. Um, so, so needless to say, Christians have disagreed on how to interpret this precisely, how to understand some of these uh, language, but they also have no problem identifying this as a non-essential text where good Christians can disagree, meaning it doesn't really get into the essence of the gospel per se. So just as we disagree with Baptists on baptism, uh, we can disagree with others on how to interpret some of the verses and language in this passage, all right? So granting this is a challenging passage, what I'm gonna do is give you, uh, rather than like a full like outline of all the different beliefs and where we stand, I'm just gonna to cut to the chase for the sake of time, give you the interpretation and understanding that I hold to and that a lot of Reformed Presbyterians you know, generally hold to in our denomination. Um, and, and present that to you. Um, now, a part of the challenge we face comes from the very first three words of verse one, all right, which begins with, then I saw. Then I saw. And, and why is that a challenge? Because this phrase, whenever it appears in the Re book of Revelation, it appears quite a few times. It has led some people to imply that John is seeing something literally unfolding um, in physical space-time, in kind of this chronological manner. Some people interpret this to mean that. And so, as if, you know, one day you will literally see a dragon or Satan in sort of a dragon-like shape, literally physically thrown into some physical pit or abyss, some physical location. But um, as cool of a visual as that might be, uh, that's not actually a, a thorough and, and careful reading of, of this text because this passage, like all of Revelation, is packed with symbolism, packed with heavy symbolism. And, and whenever you see the phrase, then I saw, whether it's in you know, Revelation 4, 8, 9, 13, 15, we're meant to infer that this is the order in which John saw these visions, not the order in which this is going to take place historically and, and temporally and chronologically. All right. So for example... Um, this idea that there's this historical sequence of events from the end of chapter 19 to the beginning of chapter 20 makes no sense. And I don't know if you recall, extra credit if you recall what chapter 19 was about, but uh, chapter 19, you basically saw the final battle at the end of the world where, where God vanquishes all of his enemies, right? And it's over. 
Jesus wins, period, end of history. Um, but then in chapter 20, what we see is Satan being bound. Satan who was unbound, not on a leash, now being bound. So if that's chronological, if that's meant to be chronological, that, it's very difficult to make sense of that when you had in chapter 19 the complete vanquishing of all God's enemies, and then Satan is still around in chapter 20. And now you have to bound, bind him. So uh, what, what we would say is, this is one of those uh, scenes where John is, John's vision is recapitulating or recapturing something that's been reappearing all throughout Revelation, where we see a common theme replaying itself through multiple visions. So it's not linear or historical or chronological, but it's capturing one image and another vision to, to, to emphasize something about that image again and again and again. So, okay. How are we then to understand this vision, uh, having said all that? Um, quick recap from, from chapters 17 to 19, uh, what we saw was the destruction of Babylon, spiritual Babylon. Uh, again, it was another symbol, along with the beast and the false prophet. And these were basically, put simply, all the things that will fall under God's judgment and even begin to be judged prior to Jesus' second coming. God will judge these things even temporarily before he brings them to a final judgment. And, and that's, that's God's way of reminding us, if you're going to have a new heaven and a new earth where uh, there's nothing but justice, nothing but peace, nothing but harmony, nothing but love, these things have to be judged and taken into account. All right? uh, otherwise, there's, there's no reasonable way of anticipating a new heaven and a new earth. Right? We need perfect justice to come, and God's going to bring it. But what's sort of left unspoken or, or unaddressed between chapter 17 and 19 is um, this guy, Satan, uh, who started it all. Uh, and, and as long as he's out there and remaining at large, um, the, the, not only the Church of Christ, but the entire world um, is still left in this, in this place of being threatened by this uh, evil ruler who, who rules the present broken uh, world this deceiver, the father of lies, right? He, he has to be dealt with. And what, we, what we're starting to see in, in this vision in Revelation 20 is, how did God begin to deal that first fatal blow against Satan even before he comes to bring him to an ultimate end by throwing him into the lake of fire? How does he begin to dismantle Satan's authority and undo his is uh, uh, wreaking havoc on the church and, and, and the rest of the world. How does God begin to do that and, and in a sense, undo the curse of Genesis chapter 3? Okay. So this vision really gives us a, a deep kind of spiritual insight into the, the, the spiritual battle that we really have no business getting involved with because like we sing in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, right? Um, uh, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. And what do we need? We need a stronger man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, and that's Christ. And this is where we see how he begins to, as the stronger man, fight the strong enemy that we can't fight. All right? Now, um, this is why the proper understanding of um, the Advent um, matters all the more, uh, and, and why Revelation matters all the more uh, as we consider the season of Advent. Uh, because it, it leads us to consider why did Jesus come and why must he come again, all right? Let me, so let me uh, break this vision up into two parts. 
because there's you know, essentially two parts to it. And part one is uh, the binding of Satan from verses 1 to 3. The second part is the reign of the saints, the ruling of the saints from uh, verses 4 to 6. And basically what, what these two aspects of the vision are communicating is Satan will lose or he's losing the saints will win in Christ. All right, the saints will the, 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 the Satan will lose. The saints will win in Christ. All right. So um, here's the here's the first part of the vision: the binding of Satan from verses one to three. It says that the the ancient serpent. Again, the the symbolism is clear: the dragon, the serpent, which is Satan. Right. John is very explicit. This is all symbolic language. He's bound, thrown into the pit, shut and sealed. Okay. Four thousand years. Now, again, it's tempting to interpret that, look at that, and interpret that as something that will happen at the end of history, but um, that is not the case, and that's not the most careful reading of this text. I'll, I'll give you some explanations as to why. For one, when you look at the New Testament, uh, you see that Satan's power during this period between the two advents of Christ, his first coming and his second coming, Satan's power is drastically reduced and limited and restricted, but not eliminated not eliminated. Um, what Jesus came to do initially, right, the, the original Christmas, what it's about is him coming to deal his first fatal blow against our enemy, Satan. In one of the less sort of beloved carols during this season, God rest ye merry gentlemen. Right? It says, uh, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to do what? Save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, right? One of the very few hymns, carols that actually mention Satan. So, Therefore, uh, one of the more, I think, accurate uh, Christmas hymns, because Christmas really is about Jesus coming to bind up Satan. Okay. Uh, I was having this conversation with Owen, my son, uh, in the car the other day, and just happened to have on my Spotify playing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Or you all know the song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, classic right, Christmas song. And when we were talking about this, how you know Christmas is really about Jesus coming down to earth to bind the dragon, Satan. And then we kind of sort of listened to the, 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 the tune at the same time. We sort of concluded, hey, maybe, maybe the, the animal that's closer to Christmas is not a reindeer but a dragon. So uh, what if we were to, as an ornament on the tree, instead of hanging a reindeer, hang a dragon? <laughs> uh, just to remind us that whenever we see it, uh, Jesus came to defeat Satan. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm not saying you have to go hang Satan on your Christmas tree, right? Please don't go home and say your pastor told you to do that. Um, maybe it could be a decapitated dragon. I don't know. Something that reminds you um, that uh, Jesus came to defeat Satan, all right? And I don't know what reindeer has to do with that, but I know what a dragon has to do with it. So one major clue, another clue that, that uh, New Testament or this passage points us to the New Testament is the word nations in verse 3. Um, what is the significance of Satan being bound? Well, what this means is Satan can no longer deceive the nations, it says, and, and, and that's because Satan is bound. Well, what does that mean? When you look at the New Testament, we see 
that what was true in the Old Testament is no longer true then. As in, in the Old Testament, the Gentile nations were largely excluded from the kingdom of God. There were some exceptions to that rule, right? If you were blessed enough to take part in Israel somehow, you would still be entered, be, be included in the kingdom of God. But for the most part, Gentile nations, and whenever the New Testament uses the word nations, it's referring to Gentiles most often time. Uh, nations were excluded from uh, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or going to the temple to worship Yahweh. And the prophets, like Isaiah, would, would prophesy, but one day, Gentiles will flock into the kingdom of God. And the nations will see, the light will dawn in the darkness, the nations will open their eyes, no longer be deceived. When is that? The dawning of the Messiah, the, coming, the first advent of Christ. And that's consistent with what Jesus says about sort of his mission too. Um, Jesus says like in the Gospels when the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan, Jesus says, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possession unless he first ties up the strong man in Matthew 12? And that language of tying up is the same word as binding or being bound in Revelation 20. And it also makes sense of why, you know, the, the, the basis and timing of world evangelism, right? making disciples of all nations, is only upon Christ's coming, his living, his dying, and his resurrecting. Right? Only then does he send his disciples out to bring the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Why? Satan is bound, no longer deceiving the nations. Right? And that's why we're here as Gentiles, non-Israelites, counted as Israel, uh, worshiping, the God of Israel. Now, does this mean Satan has no power at all, as some have implied this to me? No, clearly not. Clearly, when you look around the world, you see all the brokenness, you see all the disasters, you see all the chaos and the evil, and, and that's attributed to the, the evil ruler who still rules over, influences much of this broken world. He still has some, some measure of power and influence over the world, but limited Severely limited. He, he's, on a, he's on a chain. He's on a leash. And the way that this vision conveys that is it says in verse 1 and 3, he's been thrown into the abyss or the pit, right? Bottomless pit. And later on, in verse 10, 14, 15, it says he is then thrown into the lake of fire. So our interpretation of this, it's inaccurate to say when he's bound, he's essentially bound forever and thrown into the lake of fire because that comes later. John's vision makes a clear distinction between Satan being thrown into the bottomless pit and him being thrown into the lake of fire. So we believe the, the better interpretation of this is not that Satan was bound forever and permanently without any power. This is something that happened when Jesus came, died, and resurrected where, G, where Satan's power was for, for some time severely restricted and limited because Jesus came. But is he completely eradicated? Is he judged forever permanent? No, not yet. That's when Jesus comes the second time. Okay. So, and, and given the, the symbolic nature of Revelation, it's, it's better to avoid thinking of the abyss as some, some location, literal location like hell, but more of a figurative description of someone in a position of, of being restricted, confined, and limited, right? But not ultimately consumed, right? It's, it's not a lake of fire yet. It's it's a, it's a pit. Uh, what are the thousand years? Okay, what about that? 
Is that meant to be taken literally? Well, if we take the binding of Satan as Jesus took it to mean, meaning I'm here, I'm binding, I'm binding him for a time so that Gentiles can believe in the gospel. If that's what that means, then the thousand years would signify the time period between Jesus' first coming and second coming. And given that that's already been more than 2,000 years since you know, Jesus' birth, roughly, we know it can't be a literal thousand years. Right? This thousand year millennium is not a literal thousand years. And add on top of that, when you look at the book of Revelation, most, if not all, the numbers used and repeated in the book of Revelation, like the number 7, 12, 666, 144,000, were all symbolic. It would be inappropriate to just nitpick on this one verse and say, I'm going to take this number literally while I'm going to take all the other numbers symbolically. And we just think that's an inconsistent way of reading Revelation or interpreting Revelation. So given the context of Revelation and all of Scripture, we think it's better to, more accurate to understand the thousand years as a figurative time period, not a literal time period as some, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have you know, interpreted that to mean. We disagree with them on that. Uh, Peter also, in 2 Peter chapter 3, uses the uh, phrase thousand years, and he even relativizes time there, saying to God a day is, to, is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day, to, me, to talk about this time period where we do have time to repent. He's given us this time that all should reach repentance. That's what he says. In the same way um, as Revelation is showing us, this is the time period between Jesus' first and uh, second coming. But other than it being a finite period, we have no idea how long that period exactly uh, is. We just know that it's a finite period. So this millennium, thousand years, being a figurative time frame, right? that's in theological terms, it's the view called amillennialism. Uh, kind of indicates, you know, implies that it negates millennium, but what that means is we disagree that it's a literal thousand years, uh, but we take it more figuratively, just as a lot of the numbers in Revelation are figurative. Um, but those who believe Jesus will come, and then there'll be a literal thousand years of reigning with, with the saints, those are, that view is called premillennialism. And then the view where there'll be a thousand years of reigning with Christ, and then Jesus will come is called post-millennialism. Again, good Christians can hold those views. We just think that's not the most, personally, I don't think that's the most careful way of inter in interpreting Revelation. So we hold to the view called amillennialism. We're not saying there's no millennium. We're saying it's a figurative um, a thousand years, not a literal one. So uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie or read the book Left Behind. Uh, there was a recent remake of that with Nicolas Cage. I think it got like, what, 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, uh, that would be the premillennial view. That's, that's the view that uh, Jesus would first sort of semi come back, rapture people, and then a th literal thousand years, and then he'll fully come back and then bring everyone home. Right? That's, the that's the view that's actually the most popular view in American sort of evangelicalism and popularized through books and movies. Um, but again, we disagree with that. We, we, we don't agree that's the accurate uh, way of interpreting uh, Revelation. Rather, we believe understanding it figuratively gives us, I think, the most consistent way of understanding this and the rest of Scripture, that when Jesus returns, he doesn't semi-return. When Jesus returns, it's the finale. It's the finale of all of redemptive history. And immediately as he returns... Um, there's this great separation that happens between sin and suffering and death and love and peace and justice and joy. 
darkness and evil, light and goodness, and the believers of Jesus Christ will be raised to the latter. And, and the non-believers, the unbelievers, would be raised to remain in the former. That's a summary of what amillennialism is, that when Jesus returns, that's it. It's, it's pretty simple, and I think it's most consistent with the rest of Scripture and uh, most faithful understanding of Revelation 20. So having said that, here's the bigger, I think, more relevant point for us in this. This is worth understanding because this is what really makes Christmas worth celebrating. No more let sin and sorrow grow. And And to therefore celebrate Christmas season in the midst of all the chaos you see around you, Right? And, be, and be able to say to your, your neighbor, here's a toaster, Merry Christmas. And, and for that to not be irrational and insane, uh, this has to be true. Jesus came to bind Satan and he will come again to throw him in the lake of fire. And, and no more sin and sorrow will grow. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's a reality. That's coming soon. Therefore, as an anticipation of that, Let's give gifts, let's sing songs, and let's celebrate in the midst of the darkness. Let's, let's put the lights on the tree and light up the darkness as a symbol of what Jesus will come and do for us finally. Celebrate joy to the world because the Lord is come and the Lord will come again. So let us receive her king. That's Christmas. And, and um, therefore, we really go... F- much far beyond celebrating sort of the Christmas spirit, right? Like, you know, Elf would have, have you believe. Um, I love that movie, by the way. Uh, but this idea, we, we all know this idea, right? Uh, I hope you know, this idea is fantasy, right? It's fiction. This idea that uh, the more we believe in Santa, it'll make his sleigh fly. The more we carry the Christmas spirit, right? The, and then cheer, and, and that's going to bring, bring back the Christmas match. We know, we know that in spirit, but we know it's not true. But what we, what we are tapping into here in thinking about Jesus' first coming and his second coming, what we're tapping into is the, the reason behind celebrating Christmas, not only in spirit, but also in truth. You can celebrate Christmas in spirit and in truth because he truly came and will truly come again. Okay. Connect those thoughts for yourselves, and for your family as you celebrate Christmas this season. Satan is bound. That's what Christmas is about, right? Hang a dragon on your tree. Do something to remind yourself of that reality. All right, second point um, is the reigning of the saints from verses uh, 4 to 6. This is the second part of the vision. And John sees that there are these thrones, and he says, seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then, I don't know if you recall, but uh, not worshiping the beast, not worshiping its image, we looked at what that means previously. Um, basically, life of devotion to Christ and, and not one of idolatry, um, not one that's given over to, you know, like what Paul was talking about last week, Pastor Paul, about money. Not a life chasing after money or, or worldly comforts that are temporary, possessions that you don't carry with you into the grave, not living for these things, not worshiping therefore these things, but a life lived after Christ. These saints will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, so what does this mean? 
if a thousand years is between the time of Christ's first and second coming, this means we are reigning now, right? How? How, how are we reigning with Christ now? Where, where are we reigning? Where do we see this? The answer is we're reigning with God in heaven right now. Not on earth, as, as some interpreted, interpreted this to mean, or, or in physical Jerusalem, as some interpreted this to mean. John's clear. He saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus reigning, and therefore this is not some physical reigning in some physical location, some geopolitical location, uh, but a spiritual and heavenly one. This is symbolizing the, the vindication of all the saints who have been brought from death to life, spiritually speaking, through their faith in Jesus Christ. And even as they await that eternal life to come, even as they are hated by the world, even as they are rejected by the world because of their trust and obedience to him and worship of him, even so they know they're reigning with Christ in the heavenly place through faith now and in sight when, when we reach the life to come. We, we live in that heavenly joy now, and we reign with Christ, therefore, even now. And, and that's what's communicated whenever we worship Christ and celebrate Christ in the here and now, even in the midst of our trials and suffering and even persecution, rejection from the world. It, it evidences the fact, whenever we celebrate Christ, it evidences the fact that we're reigning with him. And in fact, it, any kind of celebration would evidence this. Um, I don't know if you recall talking about this when we talked about you know, the sermon on death and dying and how according to you know, uh, secular humanism or naturalistic materialism, uh, death ends all. Death eradicates the meaning of everything at the end of the day. And if that is your worldview, uh, every form of celebration is an escapism. It's irrational. It's ultimately meaningless. But if you're, if you're celebrating anything meaningful, anything genuine, you have to understand it's not, therefore, earthly. It's heavenly. Every form of genuine celebration of anything meaningful is a glimpse of heaven. Right? And Christians, therefore, not only have the rationality, not, not only the rational basis, but the obligation as born-again people inheriting eternal life, an obligation to live a life that is celebratory, that is filled with singing, filled with fellowship and joy and community. And it's not irrational. It's perfectly rational, and it's obligatory of us to do that. So celebrate Christmas as, as a way of glimpsing heaven, taking a glimpse into your heavenly reign with Christ. What does it mean in verse 5 where it says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended? This is the first resurrection. So let's break that down a little bit. What is meant by the rest of the dead is the physical resurrection of the unbelievers who have died, but they won't come back to life until the day of judgment, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, like we confess in our Apostles' Creed. And, and what is meant by the first resurrection then, um, we don't think that that means... This, this literal physical resurrection, like you, you resurrect physically once and then you do that again somehow. This first resurrection, we believe, is, is indicating our union with Christ where we become spiritually born again. And New Testament uses this language all the time. We are brought from death to life. Right? When your faith is placed in Jesus Christ, 
Your old self is gone. The new has come. This resurrection language is all throughout the New Testament. It, it's spiritual. And that's what we believe this first resur- resurrection is, is talking about. And because of that, because we have that first resurrection deposited into us, into our hearts, into our spiritual reality, we know when Jesus comes, we will live with him also. And that's what is meant by sharing in the first resurrection, which is Christ's resurrection. In verse 6, we share in that now through faith. And, and, and the, the big practical point here for us uh, is that if this is true and, and if you do reign with Christ and in Christ in the heavens, right, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, then that not only does that lead you to celebrate, that should also lead you to live in the here and now a transformed way of life, a different and changing way of life. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life if we have been united with him in his death we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. But the life he lives, like we live, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Offer yourselves to God. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. He, he urges those who, who have this first resurrection now by their faith in Jesus Christ, and you're born again, and you know your sins are forgiven, then go beyond celebrating, go beyond cheering, go beyond singing to offering. Offer yourself to God, your life, your purpose, your meaning, your possessions, your direction, your career path, your family life, your marriage, all your relationships. Offer these things to God and make it evident that you are raised from death to life, that you're raised from that old way of living for money and comfort and self-preservation and success and recognition and people's approval to now living for God's mission, God's people, God's glory. Be transformed and renewed now. Let your celebration translate into a transformed way of life if you are truly born again. Live a life offered to him, surrendered to him. And yes, that is what Christmas is about. And and all the symbols of Christmas are pointing us to this reality of gifting ourselves away because we know we're getting the greatest gift. When you um, look at all the gifts under your Christmas tree, I hope, and for those of you who, who do this, you don't have to do this, um, if, if you have a Christmas tree and you, you're going to put some gifts under it, remind yourself, and when we have our Christmas party, we'll certainly do that here, let's be reminded. It's an image. It's a symbol. It's where we surrender our lives at the feet of of Christ, who gifted himself to us on a tree. He presents himself to us on a tree and presents himself to us as light in the darkness. 
and, and when, it's when we find ourselves laying everything down at his feet, we find ourselves receiving that greatest gift from him. Uh, life eternal in the kingdom of God. Uh, fellowship with the Trinity. Forgiveness of our sins. Adoption into God's family. Even though we are utterly undeserving and uh, without any uh, merit. And understand that, that greatest gift uh, you're going to get at the second advent of Christ. And until then, we, we look at these signs and symbols and long for it. We anticipate it. We wait for it. As we worship, as we fellowship, and as we grow in our discipleship, as we obey him more, submit to him more, day by day, we long to open that greatest gift, God himself being with us face to face. You remind yourself, remind your children of, of that as you, even now, begin to wait, wait for the next 20-some days until Christmas Day, Christmas morning, when you will open those gifts under the tree. Um, that's such a glimpse of our, our, our lifelong waiting for the second Christmas Day, uh, when we will open that greatest gift, God himself with us, God Emmanuel. Know that that's what your faith, my faith is, is about, it, looking to the second advent of Christ. Uh, as, a, as one theologian once said, I'll close with this, faith knows for whom and for what it is waiting. Faith knows for whom and for what it is waiting. And I hope that becomes really clear for you this um, advent season that when somebody asks you, what, what is your faith in, that you're not inclined to just give that Sunday school textbook answer, God, Jesus, without knowing what that really entails, what does that mean? Faith has to be expounded further to indicate what are you waiting for, who are you waiting for, truly? What is your deepest anticipation in life? Because that's what your faith is in what your hope is in. Let's answer that as saints, as Christians, as people of God. Let's answer that with, come thou long-expected Jesus. You're the one I'm anticipating. You're the one I'm really yearning for and longing for above all else. And, and show, show forth, show that through the way you celebrate Christmas, and, and also the way that you live in, in view of that second coming, that second Christmas, the second coming of Christ. Let's pray together. Uh, a gracious God, uh, give us this Advent season um, your grace to, to push out the, um, the darkness that's both in us and around us, and invite more of your light into our hearts uh, as we commit to uh, not having more, possessing more, getting more, but following him more, worshiping him more, and loving him more, waiting for him, anticipating him more. And as we see, our lives are still, uh, in the midst of all these gifts and celebrations, still mixed mixed with so many troubles and trials and suffering and reasons for grieving. 
help us remember as surely as you came, first, you would come once again. And Lord, revive this hope uh, in your Son. And and help us to realize during this season that uh, the only way we can truly meaningfully celebrate is by uh, surrendering uh, all that we are um, at your feet. Uh, Weigh upon our hearts the significance of this season, we pray in Jesus' name.